Hello, this is Mark Brown for Beyond the Room at the Institute for Mental Health and Centre for Brain Health launch event in glorious, drizzly Birmingham today. And I'm here with... Sarah-Jane Blakemore. Sarah-Jane's just given a fantastic presentation about what you might call the mysteries of the adolescent brain. Um, what I wanted to ask you, Sarah-Jane, is what would you tell broader society and policy makers based on what you've found out you and your colleagues have found out about the brains of teenagers and adolescents? Um, I would say that unlike what we used to assume that the brain stops changing in childhood, in fact, research over the last 20 years has shown that the brain and behaviour undergo really substantial protracted change right throughout uh, adolescence and even into the 20s in humans. And that this is, these changes are adaptive, they're there for a reason, and they have real-life implications in terms of the cognitive uh, abilities of, of teenagers and things like um, uh, the kind of behaviours that we typically associate with adolescents, like risk-taking and impulsivity and peer influence. These things are not all true for all adolescents, but are true for many adolescents, and they are probably there for an evolutionary adaptive reason. So one of the things I quite like, there's... If someone asked you a question from the floor about the unique circumstances that today's young people live under and you quite quickly stepped in to poo-poo that um, and sort of say, I don't think that's the case. Can you expand on that a bit more? Well, I mean, the one thing I hear every time I give a talk, every time I talk to parents, teachers, um, uh, uh, policymakers, is the concern about new technologies like phones and social media and video gaming on, uh, on, on the developing uh, adolescent um, and I mean firstly there is very little really good quality data looking at how these kinds of new technologies affect the developing human brain and behavior and mental health so it's very hard to speculate because we just don't know we will know because really good large-scale studies are asking that question now but currently it's very hard to say there is some evidence that suggests that there may be links between for example uh, social media use and uh, mental health, but by um, Amy or Ben and Andrew Przybilski. But those associations, firstly, they are just a correlation. We don't know anything about the direction of causality, and also they're tiny. They explain very little uh, association. Um, and 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 what my answer in, after my talk to the person who asked that question was actually, if you look throughout the ages, each generation of adults has worried about new technologies that are available to young people that weren't available to them. So you can find these kinds of scaremongering stories about the invention of the radio that all young people, you know, in the 1950s or something, where young people were going to be addicted to radio. You can find it about the printing press, what would happen when young people are surrounded by books and can read anything whenever they like. Even Plato uh, wrote about his worries about uh, the invention of writing and what that would do to the memories of young people if they can simply write everything down. I, I absolutely love that, because I, I find myself fighting that battle with people all the time. All today's young people live in a historically unique situation, which, of course, is true of all young people, because <laughs> they haven't lived in other historical situations. Um, the other thing that I thought was really interesting from your talk and your work was the stuff about social risk, about young people perhaps being kind of uniquely placed in terms of their brain 
to be really, really sensitive to the fear of expulsion or um, being chucked out of a peer group. Could you say a little bit more about that for people at home? Yeah, so um, we know, for example, that adolescents are, are more... If, if an adolescent is going to take a risk like smoking or drinking or dangerous driving, they're more likely to do that when they're with their friends than when, when they're with other people. I think, you know, we can all relate to that. That makes sense from an anecdotal perspective. It's also been shown time and time again in, in lab-based experiments and also real-life data from, say, car insurance companies or epidemiological studies. But the question is why? What is it about peers that change the decisions of adolescents? Why do they make more risky decisions when they're with their peers? And that's really what a lot of our work in my lab is, is asking. Um, and one of our ideas is that adolescents are particularly sensitive to the fear of being socially excluded. And none of us likes to be socially excluded, but there's evidence that adolescents are uh, suffer the consequences of social exclu- exclusion, partic- mm-hmm. particularly um, uh, to, to a great extent compared with other age groups. So maybe they're really motivated to avoid being socially excluded. They're, they they want to be included by their peer group, and that means going along with their peer group, even if they know there are risks associated with that. So, so I, I wondered, and it wasn't really something you touched on, whether there's also a relationship between um, adolescents who experience social exclusion or social seclusion and how things turn out for them? It's such a great question, and actually we don't know the answer to that. That kind of... Um, that kind of uh question can only be answered in a longitudinal study over 10 or 20 years and although there are lots of longitudinal studies showing many interesting things about the importance of adolescent development on later adult mental health and um, well-being I don't know of any study that asked that question of adolescents and looked at outcomes I wish that they had um, but there are new studies being done like the adolescent brain cognitive development study the ABCD study in the US that are, that are looking at multitudes of factors um, in a very, very large number of kids, 12,000 kids who are currently, I think, 10, 11 years old, studying them over the next 10 years, taking measures of brain behaviour, hormones, DNA, mental health development, and that's one of the questions that, that we'll, we will probably know the answer to as a result of that kind of huge longitudinal study. Yeah, because, I mean, the, the thing that really interests me, and obviously research will look at this in future, is whether lonely kids turn into lonely adults. Um, what's your hunch? Well, my hun- well, I don't know about lonely kids, but you know we know from Louise Arsenal's work that uh, being bullied as a kid has really negative outcomes for mental health in adulthood, and including being socially excluded and socially isolated. So I think probably, I mean, I think it partly depends on whether it's um, something that bothers the kid, the child at the time, um, because some children choose to be not on their own and they don't seem to be particularly bothered by it that's not the case for most but some do um, whereas uh, be, you know in Louise Arsenal's study, studies uh, these children are, are being bullied and they're being excluded um, and it upsets them at the time and that has long-term mental health outcomes mm-hmm.